So I want you to pay careful attention to that phrase. Jesus says at the end of that story, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, the kingdom of God has come upon you. We're going to talk a lot about this phrase, the finger of God, uh, this morning. And uh, yeah, it's cool. So last week, just a little uh, catch up, Pastor Mike walked us through Daniel 5, right? Where King Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar, has stepped in temporarily to lead in his father's absence. And it's so interesting. The first thing he does is throw a big party, you remember this, right? And use the holy articles that were taken from the temple in Jerusalem, the gold and the silver goblets, and they toast the gods with these uh, objects of worship that were meant to be used only for Yahweh. Um, and this was kind of their way of saying, hey, we're superior to everyone else. Our gods are better than your God. And so they drink from these goblets as an act of spiritual defiance. And here's what history tells us. History tells us there was a shadow over Babylon because Cyrus the Persian had just defeated the Babylonian army only 50 miles outside the city. So the city was basically defenseless. And there was a sense of fear and uncertainty. Is the city going to stand? What's going to happen to us? Um, and so Belshazzar throws this elaborate party. And the idea is this, hey, look, let's eat, let's drink, let's be merry, because we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, literally. I mean, our city's at stake, our futures are at stake, and to cover all of his bases, uh, what Belshazzar does is he takes all the articles from the temple in Jerusalem, and they use those to toast the gods. And so here's the idea. Hey, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know if our city's going to be overrun. So if we toast the gods, if we do what's pleasing to the gods, maybe the city won't fall. Maybe there'll be a miraculous delivery, you know, from this army that's surrounded our city and already defeated our army. Maybe the gods will be happy with us and they'll spare our city. But then the unthinkable happens. And here's the way Daniel describes this in Daniel 5 verses 3 to 5. He says, so they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem and the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines, they drank from them. And as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched as the hand wrote and what the what these fingers are going to write out in this plaster wall is a message of judgment on this king and on Babylon in fact nobody can read the words whatever the writing is nobody can interpret it nobody can decipher it so the king calls in Daniel and Daniel is able to interpret what this hand had written on the wall right? It was mene, mene, tekel, perez. And mene means God has numbered the days of your kingdom. He's going to bring it to an end. Not a good thing to hear when there's an army surrounding your city, right? And then a message to the king in particular, you have been weighed on the scales and you've been found wanting. In other words, we put you on the scale and you fell short. 
And then, Perez, your kingdom is going to be divided and given to the Medes and to the Persian. And we know from history that that very night, the king was killed. God gave Belshazzar's kingdom to Darius the Mede and to Cyrus from Persia. So in the book of Daniel, the finger of God represents a message of judgment, right? And uh, that's not all. That's not the only place where the finger of God represents uh, a message of judgment. Uh, In fact, it represents the judgment of God in the face of rebellion and disobedience right? But look at Exodus chapter 8. Now, a few years ago, we did a study in the book of Exodus, so some of you will remember this, but God actually uses his finger again to judge the rebellion of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Uh, Many of you know that in the ten plagues, Moses had turned the Nile River into blood, um, and he'd infested the land of Egypt with frogs, Uh, Right now, here's the story behind that story. The Egyptians worshipped the Nile River, and they worshipped a god that had a frog's head. And so what God is doing in these ten plagues is he's judging ten each of these false gods of Egypt. And basically, he's saying, look, if you want to worship frogs, I'll, I'll give you frogs coming out your ear. I'll give you frogs till you can't stand frogs anymore if you want to worship them. And oh, by the way, if you want to worship rivers and the Nile, I'll show that for the fraud that it is as well. And then you know that seven more plagues followed, and each one represented a judgment on these false gods of Egypt, right? But listen to how this story played out. Here's how Moses described this story. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground and throughout the land of Egypt. The dust will become gnats. They did this, and when Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the ground, gnats came upon men and animals, all the dust throughout the land of the ground, gnats came upon men and animals. Um, But when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. Um, The magicians said to Pharaoh, it's very important, this, they said, is the finger of God. So the finger of God is used, we see this primarily in the New Testament, to represent the pronouncement of judgment on sin and rebellion. It's a, the finger of God writes in the wall a message of judgment on King Belshazzar, and the, the finger of God here results in the, the ten plagues or a message of judgment against Pharaoh and against Egypt. But the finger of God also represents something else in the Old Testament. Testament, it represents God's power. Look at this. This is from Psalm chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. When I look at your heavens, the work of your what? Of your fingers. The moon and the stars that you've established, what are human beings that you're mindful of them? Mortals that you care for them. Now, these verses remind us of God's power in creation, right? That he's sovereign, that he's big, he's huge, that he is really, really big, and we are really, really small and insignificant, Um, So his fingers alone hold the power to create not just everything that we see, but the whole universe, right? So when you think of a power that great rendering judgment, well, 
that's a little scary, right? I mean, if he's that big and that vast and that powerful, and then he's going to pronounce judgment with his finger, well, it just makes the judgment all that much more, well, scary. And, but that's not all. It doesn't stop there. So when God delivered the nation of Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea and set them at the foot of Mount Sinai, he gave them the Ten Commandments. And here's how Moses described uh, the giving of the Ten Commandments. He says, when I went up on the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant or the agreement, we're going to come back to that word. We're going to talk about the difference between the old covenant, the covenant being referenced here, and the new covenant that Jesus came to create. He says, I stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I ate no bread and drank no water. The Lord gave me two stone tablets written by the finger of God. Written by the finger of God. On them were all the commandments the Lord proclaimed to you on the mountain out of the fire on the day of the assembly. Now, we've said before that the law is the essence of what we would call the old agreement or the old covenant between God and man. And as part of that agreement, here's what God promised the nation of Israel. He said this, he said, look, if you obey me, I'll bless you. If you disobey me or you rebel against me, um, I'll punish you. I'll discipline you. Um, I'll withdraw my protection. I'll withdraw my blessing from you. So uh, there was kind of a self-serving interest, right, under the old covenant to obey God. If you wanted to be blessed by God, protected by God, preserved by God, then you obeyed. And so Belshazzar isn't obeying, right? Pharaoh isn't obeying. So God's simply being true to the agreement that he brought, right? He's bringing judgment on rebellion and disobedience. But here's something else a lot of people don't understand about the law. The law, the law can only diagnose our problem. It can't cure it. So in other words... The law, which was also written by the finger of God, is the thing that renders every one of us in this room guilty before God. Think about it this way. If you go to the hospital, they're going to run an MRI on you, right? An MRI can detect abnormalities in your body. So it can diagnose your problem, but they're not going to run you through an MRI to cure your problem, right? The MRI will only tell them the diagnosis. And listen, this is very clear when you look at the Old Testament and the Old Covenant, that here was the problem, here was the diagnosis, that people were either unable or unwilling to obey God's law, to keep it. In other words, we as a people are prone to disobedience. We're prone to rebellion. We go our own way. We do our own thing. We make up our own rules. Um, and we don't follow God's rules. And so God had to provide a cure. And the cure, so the law paves the way for Jesus. Right? Jesus did what you and I were either unwilling or unable to do. He obeyed the law perfectly. He lived under the law. He kept the law. And he died according to the law as the ultimate sacrifice for you and for me. 
But it's so important to understand that, um, that this judgment of God is flowing out of this agreement that he made um, you know, with the nation of Israel. And I want to point out something. Under the new covenant, we don't obey God in the interest of self-interest. We don't obey God to get God to bless us or to get God to protect us. We obey God because of what He's already done in sending His Son Jesus. We obey God because we're already safe in Jesus' hands. We obey God because we're already blessed in Christ Jesus. We obey God because of what Jesus has done not to get God to do something good for us. We obey God because God has already done something good for us in sending Jesus. And here's the thing about our Jesus. Our Jesus completely changes what the finger of God means in the Bible. In the Old Testament, it represents God's power, His judgment, His law. And then Jesus comes along and completely reinterprets this, just turns it on its head. Look at this. In Luke 9, Jesus sends out the 12. In Luke 10, he sends out the 70. And he tells them, hey, I want you to do four things. He says, I want you to preach grace. I want you to heal the sick. I want you to cast out demons. And I want you to feed the hungry. And his disciples in both chapters, they come back amazed that lives are being changed, that people are being transformed from bondage to freedom. They come back amazed that people who were under the suffering, they were suffering under the bondage of Satan, that they're being liberated and set free from the power of sin and demonic influence. So what Luke's telling us here in Luke 9, 10, and 11 is that he's telling us the mission, the new, the new agreement or the, the mission of the new covenant church. Our message, we're to preach grace, we're to feed the hungry, we're to liberate those under the influence of Satan, and we're to heal the sick, both spiritually and physically, right? And so Jesus said, look, when you see those things, when you see me, you know the kingdom of God has arrived. Jesus is saying the writing is on the wall. But this time, the writing isn't about judgment. It's about grace. It's about mercy. It's about transformation. It's not about death. It's about life. Jesus completely reinterprets the finger of God and, and, and retrieves it from being a message of judgment and making it a message of hope and of healing and of transformation. And it gets even better. Jesus doesn't even stop there. Some of you know this story. But in the book of John, we read about the Pharisees, the scribes, and the elders who brought a woman to Jesus who's been caught in the act of adultery and they hoped to trap Jesus into saying something that they could use against him since Torah, or the first five books of the Bible, required that she be stoned to death. Aren't you glad that we no longer live under the old covenant? Because we don't stone people today, right? We don't ever recommend that. We don't ever do that. But uh, under the old covenant, that was exactly what happened to people is they got stoned. Not stoned in the way that you, some of you are taking that, all right? Uh, this was not something you'd want to ever do recreationally, right? So, 
they bring this woman to Jesus, but Jesus, being the Word of God, he knows Torah better than the people that are bringing them to her or her to them. Uh, so he bends down and he begins to take his finger and he begins to write something in the dirt. Now it's interesting because the verse doesn't tell us what Jesus wrote with his finger. But I'll tell you this, we know it was not a message of judgment. We know that Jesus took that message of judgment and he's about to use it to show great mercy to this woman. So he bends down and he writes something in the dirt. Some people, there's a lot of speculation about what this was. Some people think that maybe Jesus was, um, you know, writing the sins of her accusers. And so they each see it and, you know, or whatever. But he, then he stands up and he says, let you who are without, the first, without sin cast the first stone. And you know the story. Everybody, puts the, everybody throws down their rocks and they walk away. And it's just Jesus and this woman. And she looks at him and she says, uh, you know, a good teacher, you know, what do you, you, oh, she said, Jesus says to her, is there anybody left to accuse you? And she says, no one. And he says, well, then I don't accuse you either. Go and leave your life of sin. So the finger of God in Jesus now represents not the judgment of God, but God's mercy and His grace and a changed life and a new direction for life, right? I mean, this is so amazing. So the same finger of God that brought judgment on Belshazzar also brought mercy to a woman who was guilty and deserved to be stoned according to the law right? I mean, the finger that God used to create the universe is now writing a message of mercy and grace in the dirt in order to turn the judgment of God on its head, right? And it's so important to remember something else that Jesus is doing here as it relates to the finger of God. Jesus says in Luke 11, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then you know the kingdom of God has come upon you. Well, guess what? Jesus wasn't the only one casting out demons in Luke 9 through 11. He sent his 12 followers in Luke 9 to do it. He sent his 70 followers in Luke 10 to do it. And they were casting out demons as well, which means they were casting out demons by the finger of God that they represented. In other words, here's what Jesus is saying. And Mike touched on this last week Jesus is saying this the writing on the wall is my people it's you and it's me and it tells us the message that we're called to bring to our city and our county and to our world and it's not a message of judgment it's not a message of hate it's a message that Jesus has turned on its head it's a message of mercy and grace and love and healing and help and transformation but when churches mix and match between the old covenant and the new this gets confusing to people there's a lot of people People who think they're being a good church person if they can be just judgmental on everybody you know like they're so superior and so much better do you know where they get that they get that from the old covenant the bummer is we're not under that covenant anymore Jesus took that covenant and he turned it on its head and this is so important he brought a new covenant and a new agreement right in the same section of Luke, 
where Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, uh, then you know the kingdom of God has come upon you. Uh, Jesus, in that same section, Luke 11, Jesus completely redefines what it means for a Christian, a follower of Jesus, to be somebody's neighbor. This is in a story that many of you know as the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, here's what's interesting about this story as Jesus told it. When his original audience heard him use the word neighbor, they knew what it meant. They knew that Leviticus 19 said that when that a neighbor was somebody else who was Jewish, somebody else that was like you. And that was part of the old agreement, right? Loving your neighbor meant love your fellow Jews. Love people that are like you. Love people that look like you, that act like you, that think like you. But you don't have to love anyone else. See, they knew that Luke or that Leviticus 19 said that. And so uh, Jesus completely redefines what the word neighbor means. He turns that on its head uh, by making the story around a Samaritan, a non-Jewish person. And he redefined it to, to the word neighbor to mean this, to mean anybody that I interact with through a day, anybody I have a conversation with, anybody I might work beside, anybody I might have a meeting with, anybody I might go to school with, anybody I might lock eyes with. Those people are my neighbors. And race doesn't matter anymore. Skin color doesn't matter anymore. Our neighbor is anyone who needs our help or needs a good word a positive word a word of healing or help or transformation that's our message as we represent the finger of God right now when I was a child I grew up watching a show called Mr. Rogers Neighborhood anybody ever watch me yeah some of us are yeah there's people my age out there love that um so each week, uh, Mr. Rogers would ask a question on his show. And what a lot of people don't know and what a lot of people don't realize is that this flowed, that Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers, was actually a very devoted follower of Jesus. And so every week he would say to children um, who were watching that show, hey, won't you be my what? Won't you be my neighbor now i think if jesus were asking the question he would say it slightly differently he wouldn't say won't you be my neighbor he would say it this way won't you be a neighbor won't you be a neighbor i mean when you run across somebody that needs an encouraging word will you offer an encouraging word if you run across somebody that needs healing or needs needs life change or needs to be taken out from under the power of the enemy will you do that this is the message that the finger of god represents now it's a message of mercy and grace and help and hope and life change and transformation uh, so important to understand this. I mean, this is what a disciple is. Listen, we've said our vision is this, to be a disciple-making church that brings hope and healing to our community because we are the finger of God. We are. And so here's the question. Mike asked this last week. I'm going to ask you again. Can people read your writing? Are you legible? 
when they read what, uh, what, you know, what your life stands for? I mean, does it, is it just helter-skelter? Do they just see you chasing after the next shiny thing? Or do they see a man or a woman who's fully devoted to Jesus Christ? Do they see a man or a woman who's living out His message through their life? This is what God has called us to do. Now, last year... Uh, may, may have been two years ago, a movie actually came out about Fred Rogers, and it was called, appropriately enough, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. I'm going to actually show you a clip from this movie to help us understand how incredibly amazing our Jesus is, how incredibly amazing the good news of Jesus really is. Now, in this scene, there's, a, there's an individual that uh, Fred Rogers has come alongside and he's trying to help this person because his life has just fallen apart. And many, many of his issues start with his relationship with his dad. And so he and Mr. Rogers are sitting in a diner and I want you to listen as they have an interchange and then we'll come back up and we'll revisit the dialogue. So check this out. Bill's right. You love people like me. What are people like you? I've never met anyone like you in my entire life. Broken people. I don't think you were broken. I know you are a man of conviction. A person who knows the difference between what is wrong and what is right. Try to remember that your relationship with your father also helped to shape those parts. He helped you become what you are. Would you do something with me, Lloyd? It's an exercise I like to do sometimes. We'll just take a minute and think about all the people who loved us into being. I, I can't do that. They will come to you. Just for a minute of silence.
So the dialogue starts out and he says, hey, you love, I mean, he's beginning to get it right that Mr. Rogers really does love him. He says, hey, you love people like me. And remember Mr. Rogers says, hey, well, what kind of people is that? I've never met anybody like you before. And he says, well, broken people. And then uh, Fred says to him, you know, because again, this is a movie, right? And so they want to downplay the whole Christian thing. So, so Fred says to him, hey, when I look at you, I don't see brokenness. And this is where if, if Jesus were sitting across the table from him, the conversation would have gone differently. Jesus would have said, I see your brokenness, but I came to help. I came to make you better. I came to make you whole. I came to walk with you. I came to see you through. I came so that you wouldn't have to walk in and through your brokenness all by yourself. See, the gospel has outed all of us as broken. See, a man or a woman can't come to Jesus unless they've made the statement, I'm broken, I need to be fixed, I need help. Why would God help you if you won't acknowledge that you need the help? Why would God make you whole if you have never acknowledged to God that you need to find a way out of your brokenness? See, the hope held out by the gospel, listen to me, look, the, the hope held out by the gospel is that the God who has loved you into being to use Mr. Rogers' phrase there, sent his one and only son so that you could live whole, so that you could migrate away and out of your brokenness, your sinfulness, your rebellion. But make no mistake, Jesus did not come to point a finger of judgment at you. He's up into that. He says, no, 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 I came to give life, not to bring a message of death. I came that men and women might have life and have it to its fullest. That's why I came. That's our Jesus, and that is the hope held out by the gospel. I mean, folks, look around the room. I want you to do me a little favor right now. Look to your left and look to your right. When you're looking left and you're looking right, look, look at me. You're looking, look up here. You know what you're looking at? You're looking at someone who's broken just like you. When you look to your right, guess what you were looking at? You were looking at someone who's broken. When you look to your left, guess what you were looking at? You were looking at someone who's broken. And the law, being good, trying to keep the law, that can't solve your problem. That can only diagnose your problem like an MRI. The law is like a spiritual MRI. So Jesus came to be the cure. Jesus came to make us righteous and make us holy. Not by what we had done, but by what He has done on our behalf. This is such an amazing thing that the God of the universe would suffer and bleed and die, but he didn't stay dead, and then be raised from the dead, right? So that he would come to live in you and me by his spirit, so that we don't have to walk in our brokenness alone. He is here now. He's in us, with us, 
Any of us who've said yes to him and asked for his forgiveness for our rebellion and our disobedience. But make no mistake about it, nobody becomes a Christian without admitting their brokenness. I mean, the gospel's out at us all as hypocrites, right? And here's what I mean by that, because some people take offense at this, and you shouldn't. Because here's the reality. Uh, Hypocrisy is not a Christian issue. Hypocrisy is a human being issue. None of us even live up to our own value systems, right? Much less God. Let me give you an example of this. I don't believe that people should lie. If I polled you and asked you, should people tell the truth? I think uh, all of your hands would go up. Yes, I believe that people should tell the truth. But then if I asked you, well, have you ever told a lie? I think every hand in the room would stay up. Because the reality is none of us even live up to our own value system, much less Jesus's. And when you're a perfect parent, you can't lower your standards, right? You just can't do that. So Jesus came. He was born under the law. He lived under the law. He kept the law perfectly so that you and I would not have to live under the judgment of that. So this is one of the reasons that I just think every man, woman, and child should be a Christian. I can't understand why anybody, why everybody doesn't want to be a Christian. I don't get it. Because the message of Jesus is perfect for our day and our time. What's not to like? God loves you, and he demonstrated that love by sending his one and his only son so that God could move into your neighborhood and God could be your neighbor. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to remember that together. We're going to remember the message of Jesus, one of hope and healing and help and mercy and transformation. And I just want to ask you, will you be a neighbor? to someone this week, maybe who needs an encouraging word, maybe who needs to be pointed to Jesus, maybe who needs to be, um, you know, helped out of a terrible situation. This is to be our message. This is to be our calling as a church. It's to be your calling as a follower of Jesus. Will you do it? Are you legible? Can people read your writing on the wall? Or do they just call in all kinds of experts and, just, and they don't see a direction to your life because they just see you reaching and grabbing for the next shiny thing and no foundation. All right, let me pray for us and we're going to respond in worship. We're going to take communion together. I'll walk you through that in a moment. I'm going to invite the team to come on back up uh, while I'm praying. Let me pray for you. Papa, I just pray that we would be men and women that the writing on the wall would be clear, that we would be that church, we would be the men, the women, the families that proclaim a message of healing, of help, of hope, of transformation, of love, of life change. God, help us to be a church that traffics in life change, Lord Jesus, because of you. And so we give you thanks and praise, Lord, as we uh, sing of you in the next few moments, um, we remember, we remember your, as we take the bread together, God, we remember your body that was broken on our behalf. As we drink the cup together, we remember your blood that was shed. But most of all, we remember the hope 
of the truth that, God, you didn't stay dead. You didn't stay on that cross. You were raised from the dead. And that's our hope, and that's what we stake our faith on, is your resurrection from the dead. Lord Jesus, we believe that you validated every claim that you ever made through your resurrection from the dead. So we, uh, we celebrate that, remember that, and God, we just thank you for your grace, for your mercy. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that no longer does the finger of God represent the judgment of God, but now it represents the grace, the mercy, and the healing of God. Jesus, we give you praise and thanks for doing that. And we do it in your mighty name. Amen. Hey, so again, we're going to take communion together. If you need prayer um, uh, during the time of communion, our prayer room is going to be open here. Melinda's here. Uh, you can go into the prayer room and receive prayer for anything that you'd like. Uh, you can do that mask on or mask off, uh, whatever you're more comfortable with. But we'd be honored to pray for you in the privacy of our prayer room. Um, in a moment, I'm going to invite you to come as we worship together and to receive uh, communion, the help and the hope of Jesus. So as you do that, we're going to invite you to come down these aisles. We also have communion stations in the back. We invite you, if you want to go back to your seat, to do that down the center or on the sides. It just occurred to me, I'm like a stewardess as I'm explaining. It's like this and this and that. Anyway, what's it like, huh? You must wonder to live in my world. Anywho, so uh, as you, but as you take communion, I just want to remind you that you're remembering the, the most loving thing that anybody's ever done for you in Christ Jesus. So don't take that lightly. Amen. Um, for some of you, you may not want to go back to your seats. You may want to come up as a family and take communion together on the offering uh, or on the altar. You're welcome to do that um, as well. Uh, so just whatever is most comfortable to you. So I'm going to pray one more time for you, then we're going to worship uh, together. So let me pray one more time. Papa, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that you are about healing and hope and change lives, that you're about rescuing us out of our brokenness. So, Lord Jesus, as we take communion together, we remember each one that there was a day when you rescued us out of our own brokenness, when you rescued us out of our own rebellion, when you rescued us out of the kingdom of darkness, and you took us into your kingdom of light. And so we give you thanks and praise, and we remember your sacrifice, Lord Jesus, on the cross for us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And so now come and receive. The altar is open.